Um, first of all, I want to say um, welcome. should introduce myself. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills Church. And again, like, like uh, Brandon already said and Scott already said, if, especially if you're new here, this is your first time here, we're so glad you're here um, visiting us and uh, pray that you'll be immensely blessed by your time um, here with us this morning. Um, but this morning, I want to talk to you about demons. <clears throat> How's that for a segue? <laughs> now, that may be a sermon introduction that you've never heard in church before. I want to talk about demons, but speaking of what, by, by show of hands, I'm just curious, by show of hands, how many of us have never heard a sermon about demons explicitly in church before? You've never heard a pre- preacher just kind of tackle this issue. Maybe half, maybe half of us. Um, We are currently studying the Gospel of Mark together as a church. Of Mark's 16 chapters, we hear explicitly about demons, unclean spirits, or Satan in 10 of those 16 chapters. And Mark is actually the least concerned with the demonic of all the Gospel writers. Matthew, Luke, and John all include demonic references that Mark omits. And so demons are on nearly every page of the gospel biographies of Jesus. If we were to write a job description for Jesus, simply based on what he does most frequently in scripture, in order, it would read, number one, preach and teach the kingdom of God. Number two, heal the sick. And number three, exercise demons. And yet, half of us sitting here this morning have never even been taught about them explicitly from the pulpit in church. And I suspect there are a few possible reasons for this didactic omission. I'll give you three. Number one, I think that one reason we don't preach and hear more about demons in the church these days is that some Christians have simply become convinced that they don't exist. We don't believe in them anymore. Since the early 20th century, there has been a widespread movement within more progressive mainline churches to demythologize the Bible. That was Rudolf Bultmann's term, early 20th century scholar. He wanted to eliminate all the mythological remnants left over from these primitive first century writers of the Bible to make scripture more relevant and palatable for an enlightened, modern, and now even postmodern people such as ourselves. And so Bultmann suggested that what folks like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John thought would be, they, they thought to be demonic possession in their pre-modern over-spiritualized worldviews, we now simply know to have medical or psychological diagnoses like epilepsy or dissociative identity, dis- identity disorder. And so, according to Bultmann and others, we can and should explain away everything supernatural from the Bible. The only problem with that worldview, of course, is that that leaves you with no God, no Jesus, no Holy Spirit, no revelation, no creation, no incarnation, no atonement, no resurrection, and no second coming of Christ. Because friends, this book is inherently supernatural, right? It's inherently supernatural. It's a supernatural book written by a supernatural, literally a beyond nature and outside the realm, the scope, the confines of this visible material world God. What kind of God would he be if he wasn't supernatural? If the book he inspired and wrote 
wasn't supernatural, if the stories it contained weren't supernatural. So we shouldn't be surprised when we find talking snakes and demons and whatever else. He'd be no God at all. And so if you're at least open-minded enough to admit the possibility of a spiritual higher power, a supernatural force for good in this world like God, then you ought to also at least admit the possibility of spiritual forces of evil as well. I think the second reason we hear few sermons about demons these days is that even for those of us who do acknowledge that they might still exist, many Western Christians simply don't consider them relevant to us today. We acknowledge the existence of demons in third world countries and in horror films. We've all heard stories, mostly from these less developed over-spiritualized societies, and we may even admit the veracity of those stories because after all, demons are in the Bible, and maybe we don't deny scripture altogether like Bultmann and others. We, we can't deny the possibility of demons altogether without denying the authority of scripture, but let's be real, that stuff doesn't happen here, right? And so we rationalize that somehow the non-flesh and blood rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil that Paul tells us about in Ephesians 6, 12, we rationalize that, okay, sure, I mean, Paul fought demons because he was so effective for God's kingdom. I mean, he must have had a huge target sign on his back in Satan's eye. There must have been a huge wanted sign with Paul's face on it in the depths of hell. But I mean, Paul was far more spiritual than us. He was more in tune with those supernatural realities. And so maybe, maybe the same is still true in other parts of the world today where their cultures are more spiritualized than ours and where the war for the gospel is still raging, the front lines of the evangelistic battlefield. Maybe it makes sense that they would encounter the demonic spiritual warfare in a way that we wouldn't hear. And so we explain away the reality of demons all around us in that way. And to be honest, I mean, there's probably a lot of self-fulfilling truth in that. Maybe you've read C.S. Lewis's famous screw tape letters. If you haven't, you should. Uh, I posted a piece by Greg Morse at Desiring God on our church Facebook group last week in which Morse expands on Lewis's vision of the demonic world and specifically the mentorship of one younger demon, Globdrop, by his more experienced uncle Wormwood. And Morse's article is so good and it's so convicting, I think, for us. It should be for us as a 21st century American church that even if you did read it on Facebook this week, I wanna revisit it with you this morning. It's so good. Listen to how Morse envisions demons working in 21st century America today. My dear Globdrop, you lament how little progress you have to report over these recent weeks. Your man has not tumbled downhill as quickly as you hoped. The fly has avoided old webs, and this discourages you. Nephew, I can hear your yawn from headquarters. You've bored of gentle slopes soft underfoot in favor of these mighty tumblings you speak of. Our traditional ways do not suit you properly. Hubris, nephew, makes for hungry demons. The soft crunch of the forbidden fruit sufficed for our master, but you want more explosion, do you? Make no mistake, we love adulterers, thieves, and murderers, but these are delicacies, 
not the main course? Have you forgotten that most who fall to our Father's house never expected to arrive? They assume themselves good enough, if not to merit heaven, doubtless to avoid hell. Most men, always sooner than later, to ponder life's biggest questions, to focus more on the enemy, or to make it back to church. But death startled them. Although they never got around to giving a damn, they nonetheless received one. Glob drop, the main course consists of the dreadfully preoccupied persons who otherwise are taken up at present, not accidentally, mind you, with more urgent matters. Your man does not need to serve jail time nor burn down the town. He must simply, innocently carry on believing that eternity is the business of tomorrow. Spiritual procrastination, although not as petting to the ego, has been our stickiest web for the past two centuries. The most common path to hell unsettles the least. How, you may wonder, can we get him to forget his God and his own soul for an entire lifetime? Well, as one of their own soldiers asked, how can you hide a rhinoceros standing in the middle of a room? You fill the room with millions of mice. Diversion, nephew. Endless diversions. Release the mice. Consuming careers, YouTube videos, birthday parties, dirty dishes, whining children, dream vacations, housework, clicking, typing, scrolling, always something to distract him from the enemy. We must create that overstimulated, overcaffeinated soul which cannot endure inactivity. A soul that finds no repose with a book, a steady gaze out the window, or a quiet evening left alone. Such jittery spirits cannot attend to prayer or sit calmly with the enemy's wretched word. Do your job effectively, and over time you can manipulate him to welcome such diversions as a relief from the solitary confinement of the dreadful religious life. He may come to hope to see that the shades need dusting, the dishes need doing, the dog needs a walk. Anything but stillness, anything but silence. Always be ready to hand him Martha's busy broom. Let the vermin admire holiness so long as it's tomorrow's holiness. Suffer them to value the thought of chastity while being currently unchaste. Let them highly esteem abstinence, practice indulgence. Let them think themselves the better for highly esteeming it. Don't let them see the contradiction. Allow them to sweetly imagine that they inhabit tomorrow's holiness merely because they value it today. Let them sweetly imagine that his vague plans to take up faith tomorrow excuses his negligence today. As the enemy bids him, follow me. Comfort him in the reply of, yes, Lord, even though he follows it with, but first let me. And while they bury their dead or buy their fields, examine their property, teach them that wanting to follow, seek, and obey someday is all but an indistinguishable from actually doing so. Comfort him in his good intentions to follow the Savior tomorrow, next week, or when life settles down. We know what the road to hell is paved with. This is where your desire to kill by gunshot backfires. Great sins can awaken thought and jolt a slumbering conscience. Instead, preach our favorite beatitude in his busy season. Blessed are the nice, for theirs is the kingdom. Which kingdom? Precisely. Congratulate him that he does not stew in drunkenness, teach our doctrines, or abuse his closest relations. He is nice. Nice, Globdrop. Stands in sharp contrast from those curses such as righteous, holy, or pure. Indeed, it is our sugar-free substitute. 
It tastes like holiness, promises to acquit like righteousness, and alleviates the conscience like purity, all while fattening for the day of slaughter. Do you see our brilliance, nephew? You need not hassle yourself with these mighty falls. Quietly make him neglectful, busy, temperate. Assure him that the enemy is obliged to save him as long as he isn't tumbling about. We know better. If we present them to the enemy, lukewarm, he promises to spit them out, and we aren't nearly so picky. Remember, the enemy himself set the excessive standard. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anything less than supreme love and allegiance will not suffice. If friends to this world and enemies to him, he has built high walls and cut but a narrow path. Our way is much broader. This day his wretched maker calls to your vermin, entreating him to come. He promises if he will but seek and give himself to seeking, he undoubtedly will find more tasks, more caffeine, more television. Send forth the mice. You may get more satisfaction from shooting your prey and hearing him squeal, but our master assigns us to go quietly drown souls under calm streams. Never tire of this. Send him down the halls of the Titanic to clean rooms and fix faucets. Don't let him notice the subtle decline nor mind the frantic pleadings of others on board. He will be fine. What's the worst that can happen? Your expectant uncle, Wormwood. Brothers and sisters, if we hear nothing else this morning, please hear this warning. There is an enemy. He is real. He is alive and well for now in this world. He's the prince of this world. John 12, 31, he's the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's prowling around like a lion, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. But he's no longer a roaring lion in 21st century America. Do you know why? Because if he roared, he might wake the church up. Think about it. If you were Satan in West County, St. Louis today, why on earth would you take possession of someone's body and risk waking the church up? When you've spent two centuries now slowly, subtly, but effectively convincing the vast majority of the church that you don't even exist anymore. Maybe we're right. Maybe we don't need to worry that much about demons anymore because frankly, maybe they're not that worried about us. Are we too preoccupied on our phones, rushing from one thing to the next in our busy schedules to make any real impact for the kingdom? If we're not a threat, why would Satan bother with us? Here come the demons. It's again, I'm telling you. It's this ongoing joke with me and my wife this week, I'm blaming everything on the demons. You know, my microphone that won't stay on my head and contacts trying to fall out and keep me from being able to see this morning. I mean, just the rain. Anyways, number three, finally, maybe the church doesn't address the topic of demons because we just don't know how. We feel unequipped. 
How do we apply what seems to be a pervasive first century reality to our world today where, frankly, most of us have little to no firsthand experience with this stuff? One more show of hands. By show of hands, how many of you would say you've had direct firsthand experience with the demonic? Okay, more than I expected, about half of us. I can think of only two such direct encounters personally for me in my life, maybe a half dozen or so other indirect stories. And while sharing these stories with you this morning might grab your attention, help wake us up as a church to the reality of spiritual warfare all around us, I want to go in a different direction with the remainder of our time this morning, and I want to try and begin to actually equip us together as a church to, to know how to approach the demonic realm today by going to our ultimate source of authority and equipping God's Word. We have just enough time this morning to scratch the surface today. This will by no means be a comprehensive survey. There are dozens and dozens of important passages in Scripture on demons we could and should and will one day get to study together as a church, God willing. But this morning, we just have enough time remaining to study a few select passages from the Gospel of Mark that we've been studying through these past few months. So today will be part one of a two-part mini-series, specifically on Jesus versus demons. And I'm going to give you three takeaways from three different passages from the Gospel of Mark. And then two weeks from now, we'll finish the, the, the Jesus versus demons with six additional passages from Mark. And we're going to go straight for the takeaway principle this morning. Jesus, what is it that you want us to understand from your word about demons? We're going to fly through these, so if you have questions about any of this, would you write this number down, 314-960-5229. That's my personal cell phone number, don't abuse it. Uh, but we're, we're going to try something different this week, and um, shoot me a text during or after I got my phone on airplane mode, so hopefully it won't, the demons won't use it to distract me in, in my preaching. Um, text me. During, after the sermon, the best questions on the demonic this week will show up on our, in this week's uh, episode of Going Deeper, our, our church podcast. So uh, let's jump in. Question number one, or, or sorry, thing number one that we need to know about demons. The first and most important thing that we need to understand about demons is that Jesus has all authority over them. Mark 1, 21 through 27, this is where we've worked our way up to. Taylor preached last week on Mark 1, verses 16 through 20, where Jesus calls the disciples. Taylor did a great job. Thank you, Taylor. And now we're up to verse 21, and we find this story about these demons. And they went into Capernaum, the disciples, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you done? What, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now notice, the people here aren't amazed by the demonic possession. 
I mean, if this happened today, if one of you stood up in church right now, because keep in mind, they're in the synagogue, right? So if one of you stood up in church right now and started screaming, screeching in this otherworldly voice that we're all like, that's not his normal voice, and you started attesting to these otherworldly spiritual truths that you would otherwise have no way of knowing, because keep in mind, this demon recognizes Jesus as the Holy One of God in verse 24. It's the first character in Mark's gospel to recognize Jesus' true identity, other than God himself when Jesus is baptized. If you stood up and started spewing otherworldly knowledge in otherworldly tongues right now, that would probably be the headline of the morning for us. We would walk away like, what just happened, regardless of whatever else transpired after that. But here, they're not, they took they're not amazed by the demon. They, they took the demonic influence for granted. They were amazed by Jesus' authority over the demon because they're much more in tune with the reality of the spiritual world than we are today. We're often blinded to it. But they were primed to see it. We hear of evil spirits all over the Old Testament. We don't have time to deal with all of these, but 1 Samuel 16, Saul is tormented by an evil spirit. 1 Kings 22, the lying spirit that deceived Ahab. 1 Chronicles 21.1, Satan incites David to take uh, unlawful census. Psalm 106.37, Leviticus 17.7, 2 Chronicles 11.15. Demons are all over the pages of the Old Testament. In fact, Deuteronomy 32 verses 16 and 17 makes a direct link between false gods and demons. And so you could actually argue that every time we hear or see a false idol or a false god, the pagan gods of foreign nations in the Old Testament, which is all the time, we're actually dealing with a demon. But I just want to quickly look at one passage that really hammers home this first point of God's authority over the demonic realm. From Job chapters 1 and 2, do you remember this story? There was a man in the land of Uz named Job, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch him, all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so what does Satan do? Satan kills all Job's servants, his livestock, his livelihood. His house falls down on his whole family and kills his entire family except for his nagging wife. And what does Job do in response? Verses 20 through 22, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So does Satan give up? Chapter 2. The Lord said to Satan, Job still holds fast to his integrity. You were wrong. 
Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason, notice that God sent the wind that blew the house down. Satan incited God to destroy him. God is still sovereign. Nothing happens outside of God's divine providence and prerogative. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face then. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. We won't read the rest of the story from there. You know how it ends. But I just want us to see this morning God's absolute control and authority over Satan. Satan has to ask for permission for everything. God is in total control. Mark 1.27, Jesus commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And that's the first and the most crucial thing for you and me to understand about the demonic realm is that it answers to God. Satan answers to God. So we have hope. We can trust that God is still sovereign. Number two, the second thing we need to know about demons is that vanquishing them was an essential part of Jesus' mission. Mark 1, now we skip forward to verses 37 to 39 on another encounter with exorcism. The disciples found Jesus and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and what? Casting out demons. In Luke 4, Jesus, in the same story, Luke, Luke has Jesus saying, I was sent for this purpose Yes, to preach the kingdom of God, but not just to preach it, to actually bring it. Paul says the kingdom of God comes not in word alone, but in power, 1 Corinthians 4.20. So how does Jesus enact the power of God's kingdom on this earth? Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And friends, our captivity, our oppression is not first and foremost a physical one. Social justice is important. It's good. The church should be involved in it. Jesus clearly wants us to care for and help the physically poor, the physically blind. He he proves that by doing it himself. But interestingly, did you know that Jesus never literally liberated a prisoner? We never in in any of the four Gospels see Jesus physically take chains off of someone who was oppressed. So what is he talking about here in this prophecy in Luke 4? If he never physically liberated the oppressed, that's why his own people crucified him. That's why the Jews crucified him. They wanted a Messiah to free them from their oppressive Roman overlords. And when he didn't, they crucified him. But friends, Jesus knows that our most pressing need, our darkest oppression, isn't a first century Roman overlord. It isn't 21st century racial injustice or sexual abuse or human trafficking. As awful as those things are, as motivated as the church should be to address and seek to end them in this world, we cannot lose sight of the fact that the greatest oppression of all is always spiritual. It is spiritual oppression that billions of people are walking around the earth today enslaved to their own sinful passions and enslaved, therefore, to the God of this world who, by virtue of their sin, has rightful claim and ownership over their lives and their eternal destinies. And if they are not first set free 
by Jesus, billions of people will be going to hell. That is oppression. And Jesus said, I'm here to set them free. And so I ask you, are we? Are we? First of all, have you been set free? Today can be the day of your salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel. And for all of us who have, Christian, do you understand that you are here to proclaim the good news so that King Jesus can set hearts free? Do you know that's why you're here? And do you do it? That is spiritual warfare. That's spiritual warfare. Evangelism is spiritual warfare. And if you never want to have to worry about demons, just don't ever tell anyone about Jesus. They won't bother with you, I promise. Number three, and lastly, last thing this morning that I want to highlight for us that we need to know about demons is that they make for excellent theologians. We skip forward to chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Mark tells us, And whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, and they shudder. We will see this all the way through the Gospel of Mark. It's not the disciples who get Jesus' identity right. It's the demons. The demons knew exactly who Jesus was, and they shuddered. Friends, please don't fall into Satan's trap of believing that you are saved because you know the right things about Jesus. We have talked about this at length in recent sermons. I will continue to do that, to preach it until you fire me or the Lord calls me home because I am convinced that this is Satan's number one tactic in the Western church today to convince Christians that they're Christians because they acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God. Friends, that makes you no more Christian than the demons. Demons are not Christian. They know who Jesus is. Do you confess him as Lord? Is he your Lord? Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Demons don't do that. They won't do that. They cannot do that. 1 John 4, 3 says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's a spirit of the Antichrist. So I want to summarize for us this morning and bring this to a close, try and wrap it together, help you apply it to your life. Demons answer to God. The question for us this morning is, do we know the one to whom even Satan must one day bow his knee? Do you know him? Do you know him personally? The one before whom one day Every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians 2. Do you know him personally? Do you know that one? Because the reality is you will bend your knee one day. You will confess one day, whether you like it or not. And you will either do so from one of two possible eternal destinations with either tears of joy streaming down your face or tears of anguish. Those are the only two options. 
surrounded by all the host of heaven, singing, glory, glory, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Or surrounded by the demons, and you'll be very aware of them then. They won't be so subtle then. And where and how you recognize Jesus' lordship for all eternity will be solely determined by whether or not you recognize his lordship today, now, here on this earth. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Friends, we only get one shot at this life. You get one shot, one chance to decide who you will live for. Is it going to be you, or is it going to be Jesus? He has all authority over heaven and earth. Will you recognize it today? Will you give him authority today over your life? Let him be your Lord and Savior. He wants to set you free from the worst oppression of all. It's why he came, but it requires more of you than mentally checking off a few doctrinal boxes. Even the demons do that. It requires your faith. It requires your heart. It requires your life. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. So I ask you again this morning, friends, are you ready to lose your life, to die to your old life, dead in your sin, to find new life, to be raised to new life in Christ? It is the best decision you'll ever make. Let's pray.